I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a special edition of Minnesota Now. This hour, why, if you live in a city, what you think you know about rural America may be either outdated or wrong. This fall, the Westminster Town Hall Forum is devoting their autumn season to what they call Healing Our House Divided. And they're acknowledging that part of that division is between rural and urban Americans. Tomorrow night in St. Joseph, Minnesota, I'll launch a series of town hall forums about rural life in Minnesota. I'll be in Chisholm to talk about education and workforce training. And in Cannon Falls on the 27th to talk about rural health care. To join me, and I hope you will, go to ruralvoice.org. Today, we have two guests with experience and expertise on the rewards, the challenges, and the changes that are happening in rural America. We begin with Lisa Pruitt. She's a professor of law at the University of California Davis School of Law, where she specializes in rural issues. She will appear at the Westminster Town Hall Forum on October 25th at noon. And she joins us from California now. Lisa, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Loka Ashwood is with us as well. She's a sociologist and assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, where she focuses on rural communities and their participation in democracy. She joins us from Lexington, Kentucky. And Loka, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. Professor Pruitt, let's establish some rural credentials here. I grew up in a very small town in western New York, like nine hours from New York City. You grew up in rural Arkansas, and I want to know a little bit about the community that you grew up in. Well, I grew up in a county of 8,000 people uh, in the Ozark Mountains, and uh, it is a persistent poverty county, mm-hmm. and uh, which means that it's had a high poverty rate basically since... Uh, Poverty started to be tracked in the 1960s, and it is somewhat unusual for uh, as a persistent poverty county in that it in that it is essentially all white. So persistent poverty is a phenomenon that's normally associated with uh, the Black Belt, with um, uh, Indian Country in the Southwest and the West, and in the Rio Grande Valley. But it's also associated with Appalachia and the Ozarks. So very remote not much going on in terms of the labor market. So mm-hmm. most people had to travel to neighboring counties for uh, for work, for any sort of manufacturing work, for example. So that's where I grew up, fifth generation, both sides of my family. So like a lot of uh, folks who grew up rural, I still have an attachment to that place, very much so, even though I left it about 30 years ago. I, I'd imagine there are deep familial ties for the people that live there like they they can trace their family generations back yeah yeah um so my mom is still there and uh and yeah there's uh you know the sort of standing uh, joke is that you're an old timer there once your grandfather's been buried there so it <laughs> takes it takes several generations uh to really be accepted actually you know as uh, as as a local um and and there is you know unfortunately a rift uh in many communities like that between what folks speak of as old timers versus newcomers Professor Ashwood you grew up in western Illinois how large was the town that you come from well, I, I grew up out on a farm in the countryside around a town of 550 friendly people, 
is what the sound is what the sign said for industry Illinois. Um, and I was lucky enough to go through um, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade in the same school building. Uh, since since then, that school has closed. Um, it's one of probably one of the things that we'll talk about today is the lack of support for schools, um, right. which are the centerpiece of so many communities. All right. So is there, as with where Lisa Pruitt comes from, deep familial ties there? I mean, people end up staying in these communities, even though they may have to drive for work or leave for education because this is familiar territory for generations of family members. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, I think there's that there's that desire and that belonging and, and want to stay. Um, so Lisa is uh, she she has a different perspective for me, I think, also in terms of time. So so many of, of the, the, the folks that I grew up with, so it's mostly the same students, K through 12, 21, most of them moved away. So they took jobs elsewhere because they couldn't find employment locally that helped them to be able to stay. So as much as those familiar ties are one of the most beautiful things in a lot of cases you can have in a rural community, I think a lot of people haven't been able to stay that want to stay. And I think not having those options and then having that support system that comes with family and community for those that leave is, it, it, you know, it, 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 there's an ache when mm-hmm. you leave mm-hmm. and you don't have that possibility to stay. So um, while I think that I always like to say in, in my small public high school or my small public uh School that I went to, we had five Illinois State scholars, hmm. you know, out of 21 students. That's that percentage wow. is really high, right? Excellent quality of education. Um, but it's difficult to stay when you want to stay. And that's one of the things we have to take on is allow for people to stay that want to stay and make it easier on those who do stay. We're going to talk about that today. Um, Lisa Pruitt, I I don't think we're here today to say, well, if you've seen one rural town in America, you've seen them all. But there are some commonalities among rural towns and the way people live in these communities, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I I will say in response to your your comment that if you've seen one, you've, you know, you've seen them all. There is actually an adage among rural sociologists that if you've seen one rural place, you've seen one rural place or one <laughs> rural town. So there, there are some things that set them apart, but there are definitely also some commonalities. And I would say accepting places that are experiencing rural gentrification, which are sort of in a category of, of their own in many ways, um, that some of the phenomena that Loka was just talking about are certainly associated with rural places. And, and so that means uh, typically a lack of diversification in the economy, uh, lack of opportunity, which leads to population loss, which Loka was speaking of, and uh, which certainly, uh, you know, you also see in, in rural Arkansas, and we see it here in rural California, where I live now, um, and so then you see this sort of drying up of, of, uh, of services. We hear a lot about post office closures. Uh, Loco was talking about school closures. Um, hospital closures have been very much in the news in the last decade. So it's a feedback loop that can, you know, turn into a death spiral, right? For a rural community, because if a rural community loses its school, 
loses its hospital, loses its post office, its grocery store, um, then uh, people are not going to going to want to go and live in those places, uh, right? So, you know, one thing that I've been writing about for several years is the rural lawyer shortage. And so it's really no surprise that even people who might be attracted to a rural community, all things being equal or many things being equal, um, are not willing to go and uh, hang out a shingle in a rural right. community because they there's not a good place to educate their children or there's not good health care. So again, it's a sort of feedback loop, right? Mm-hmm. That the population loss is going to lead to the loss of this civic infrastructure which is going to just lead to more population loss. I am so glad you described it that way because, uh, Loka Ashwood, this is something I want to talk about, this idea of the spiral and where it stops and where intervention really works. I mean, there is this, this is one of the things that we're going to talk about in one of these town hall forums I'm doing. There is this perception that if you are creative or you have a great idea for a business or you're highly educated, you will have to leave that community and go to the big city to find the kind of work, you know, uh, that you've been educated for or to start that kind of business. I wonder if you see government policy or private investment policy that just reinforces that and doesn't really solve that. Because if this is a spiral, there's got to be a beginning and an end and a way to, you know, to intervene effectively. What would you say? Uh, it's a great it's a great question. And, and the phrase spiral is such a helpful one because I don't think that these things happen naturally right. or as part of a free and open market system. I think it has been by design. So I think we've had um, a tendency in policy, particular policy, farm policy and agricultural policy to subsidize the largest of operations to make them more profitable than smaller operations or what we might think of as the smaller, medium sized family farm. So the what has happened in rural America today in terms of agriculture is because of policy that has been explicitly designed to say, get big or get out, and we're going to mm-hmm. pay you to get big or get out. And so that sort of loss in rural communities is one of the dimensions that we have to take a very serious look at the role of our, our federal or United States or our USDA or United States Department of Agriculture and our, our farm bill in shaping that decline. And then its relationship to things like rural poverty, when people who want to stay and also have intergenerational expertise in manual forms of labor that might not have a college degree, but are forms of expertise in and of themselves, they can't. So I think just one thing that I, I think is absolutely crucial to stress is that rural communities can be vibrant if we allow them to, and we have policies that support small is beautiful and not big is the best. And so, Professor Pruitt, that's one of the things that I'm curious about is, is a lot of the kind of policy, government policy, private investment policy that doesn't fulfill what Loka was just talking about, is that based on, I don't know, misunderstanding, misperceptions about who lives in in rural communities and the level of education that they have and the desire and ambition that they have. I guess, where does this come from? 
when it sounds like Loka is saying, you know, there's a roadmap for intervening effectively here. We don't do it very often. Right. Well, I do think that there is a broad and broadening failure to value rural people and places. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to assert that that is exactly what's led to some of the policies that Loka's been studying and that she was just talking about. But I do think that increasingly these attitudes about rural people and places is is certainly feeding a, a failure to to intervene in some ways that, you know, we could in terms of public policy and laws. And so one issue, I, again, that, you know, we could hold up as an example would be the rural lawyer shortage. You know, in California, because we are such an overwhelmingly urban state, even though we have the great Central Valley and, you know, we're this great bread basket and mm-hmm. we produce everything. But our population is so concentrated in urban areas, even in the Central Valley, that it's very hard in our state house to, to, to get attention and traction to the needs of rural people and places. In South Dakota, which I like to hold out as a great example of a state that where it is easier to, you know, draw policymakers' attention to, to rural needs, there is a now decade-old intervention uh, which is basically paying lawyers a stipend to help them get established in a rural community. Huh. So I think that, you know, what I hear in <laughs> what might be called my coastal elite world, because that is hmm. the world, you know, in which I now live, is a lot more rural bashing. And uh, that's that's the term that I've recently been using to refer to this phenomenon that we've actually been seeing for a while but I think it's accelerating. There's, I think, so much resentment among urban and coastal folks towards rural people. And a lot of it is about recent political trends, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's because of uh, resentment that rural people have disproportionate power in the Senate. They have disproportionate power in the Electoral College. And there is certainly a perception that they are less... Um, less worthy, less educated, uh, don't know as much, don't know the right stuff. And this is fueling an extremely, uh, you know, this is an extremely unhelpful trend, right? Now, how it's playing out in policies, you know, specific policies is harder to say, but the rhetoric is, is, is very, very troubling, in, in my opinion. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a special edition of Minnesota Now. We're talking about Among the many divisions within the United States, Americans feel a division over geography, over places where they live, depending on whether you live in rural communities or you live in the city. You live on the coasts or you live in middle America. You live in an agricultural community or you live in a high-tech community. And we're talking this morning with a couple of guests who have a lot of expertise and knowledge and firsthand experience of the rewards, the challenges, and the changes 
that are happening in rural America. Lisa Pruitt is with us. She's a professor of law at the University of California Davis School of Law. She specializes in rural issues. By the way, she'll appear at the Westminster Town Hall Forum to talk about some of these issues on October 25th at noon. And Loka Ashwood is with us. She's a sociologist and assistant professor at the University of Kentucky where she focuses on rural communities and their participation in democracy. And Loka, that's something I wanted to ask you, uh, what Lisa was saying about these perceptions, derogatory perceptions from city and coastal, quote unquote, elites. I, I know you spend a lot of time in the company of people who live in rural communities. I would bet they're very aware of how they're seen and how they're perceived by people that live in more city-fied or urban communities. What do you hear from people when you're out doing your interviews? Mm. Well, <clears throat> I when I'm talking to folks, I think about the community I worked with the most closely was recently uh, Fruithurst, which is a, a, a small community of a couple hundred folks in northern Alabama. I had the, the honor and pleasure of working with them over a childhood cancer cluster and what I hear when I'm talking to folks is not articulated animosity towards urban people as uh, by default different than us. But what I hear is the government doesn't care. We don't count. Um, and when Lisa was mentioning very rightfully that there's this, this perception and in, I mean, you can quantify it correct in the way that Congress works and the way that our senators are assigned um, by state, mm -hmm. uh, that there's this over rural representation, but it's very limited to the electoral system. And so what I hear from rural people is like what Lisa was talking about early on in the program is we don't have access to this. And that's tied up in our regulatory system. So we have tons and tons of agencies that are supposed to provide help and aid to communities and um, communities and people in need. But what happens to rural folks, because our government is uh, very wedded to cost benefit analysis, which means, you know, who can we serve the most where it costs the least? Rural people get left out. So in this community, uh, Fruithurst, uh, they couldn't get anybody to pay attention to their cancer issues. Um, it started, they were specifically concerned with childhood leukemia. And they couldn't get anybody to come out or pay, pay attention because the number isn't significant enough when you're looking at things like um, prevalence rates. So mm -hmm. rural people, like in that case, what they want, they, they want attention to their issues, regardless of the fact that there's fewer people there, because democracy never said if there's more of you, you're supposed to have more benefits. Um <laughs> I mean, we can, I guess we could get into the theory of that, but uh, that that's what I'm hearing most in communities that I work with is, is we don't count. One of the, the misunderstandings of rural life in Minnesota, and, and I have a feeling that you're both seeing this in some of the other communities that you're in, is that it is only white and it's mostly poor. And Lisa and Loka, I think as you've both you've both acknowledged, there are pockets of poverty in many rural communities. But what we're seeing in our state is significant increases in families of color. Uh, in Worthington, Minnesota, 30% of the population there was born outside of the, of the United States. They're being drawn 
um, to these communities by manufacturing. What I'm interested in is what these misguided assumptions mean for, especially when we talk about demography, mean for the divisions that we perceive between rural and urban America. Lisa, maybe you'd tackle that first. Well, I think if there were a greater awareness of the racial and ethnic diversity that is um, that has long been long existed in rural America, and as you say, is growing, I think it was actually Amy Klobuchar who I recently heard point out that uh, in the latest census, one in four rural residents is a person of color, right. and that's up from the prior census where it was uh, one in five. So I, I think actually uh, urban and coastal folks would find rural needs more sympathetic if they understood and right. really grasped uh, that there is more sh- more racial and ethnic diversity and that these are not just, you know, you, not just white folks who you can think of as as very privileged simply because they're white or as you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the associations are of, of rural poverty. And, you know, those associations of rural poverty kind of cut both ways. You know, it's, it's going to cause some people to be more sympathetic, but it's going to cause some people to be much less, uh, you know, sympathetic to, to those communities. So, you know, the, the racial, growing racial diversity in, you know, rural America also points up again, a commonality with urban needs. There are so many things that poor rural communities need uh, that poor urban communities need. And so instead of pitting these two groups against each other, you know, we really need to, again, look for the common ground and say, you know, here's an underserved community uh, that's rural and here's an underserved community that, um, you know, one's rural, one's urban, but they both need broadband they both need, you know, better schools. Mm-hmm. They both need access to health care. They both need clean water. And so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to focus more on on the shared need and the shared vulnerability and less on, you know, sort of a competition of who's more deserving and more needy. That really makes sense. If mm. I might, look, I, just, I don't want to miss that point that you've just made, Lisa. And I wonder, Loka, if... Th- if part of this is it serves, I guess, the the goal of some of the political class to emphasize and, well, and let's say exploit these divisions. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to hear Lisa say, if you're worried about the quality of schools, your concerns are going to be – are going to look pretty similar if you live in a rural community where your kids – where the quality of education isn't good enough, or you live in a part of a city where your schools just aren't being supported. But the, I, I, I'd love your thoughts on whether our political classes find it more expedient to, you know, exploit or emphasize those differences. Uh, that's a, a very astute point. And uh, to, to build on what Lisa was saying, and then to go back to your 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 education example, is the South is specifically indicative of the way in which racial divisions have been used to prevent class alliances to make change. 
And the reason why I mentioned the South in, in particular, because we have most rural, most of the rural people in this country live in the South. Most of the rural poor live in the South. And also we have most of the history of black farmers in the U.S. South. And so these ways in which we label particular regions and use phrases like backward or inarticulate, there's often a racial dimension to that, whether it's a racial dimension of talking about Appalachian whites in a particular derogatory way. We've seen that so much with the recent, recent floods in eastern Kentucky, where it's like, well, this is these are this is their fault. Why do they huh. live there in the first place? You know, they shouldn't <laughs> live there. And then we hear the same thing about black farmers in in the deep south in Georgia. Well, that that land just isn't good enough. Or there's that plantation agriculture history. Now, we we see some movement against this, but we're still not having the recognition across the board that we're also racializing rural people in ways that we can denigrate them more and separate them out from urban folks who actually have much more in common with them with them than they don't. Lisa, um, let me pick up on, on what Loka just said. What, can you tell me why these perceptions about what demographically, what rural America is, are so stubborn when the numbers tell a different story? Well, I think it's it's probably due to a lot of factors, um, you know, why these perceptions are so stubborn. I mean, they are, in many cases, historically accurate, you know, accepting some of these regions which have always had uh, people of color, you know, like I mentioned, the Black Belt and um, and the Rio Grande Valley and so forth. And, you know, there are representations in, in the media, in popular culture, that are, you know, just very longstanding. And um, so it, it can be very, very hard to to dislodge those. I know you've looked specifically at opportunities for women in rural communities. And uh, I think you've talked about how patriarchal forces ripple through family lives to economic choices for women. I, I wonder if you'd you'd tell us what you've, whether you have a sense that as you've said, these are historically um, accurate situations, but that this is changing? Or is your research revealing that there's some very set ways uh, of the way people live and the limits that women have in what family power in in family circles and economic opportunities right right well i don't want to discount you know women's agency or or anyone's agency and the opportunity to um you know resist cultural forces including you know those that are patriarchal and highly gendered and and raced and so forth but yeah i have looked at you know, what I call a, a sort of more entrenched form of, of patriarchy in rural communities. And a lot of that has to do with, again, economic opportunity and, you know, the different economic opportunities that men and women may have within rural communities, again, related to those generally undiversified and, and kind of crummy labor markets, right? Mm -hmm. So if we just think about the divide between, you know, what we might call pink collar work, uh, maybe childcare and uh, blue collar work, 
the, you know, the blue collar work, the work that's associated with men is, you know, better compensated. And sometimes what we see is that the, the divide or that gender pay gap is even greater in rural areas than it is in cities, right? Because there's less, there's just less opportunity generally, less competition and so forth. And so women, heterosexual women are very often beholden to the men in their lives in, in, you know, they have actually, uh, their their agency is 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 diminished compared to you know urban women who may have more opportunities to move out of a controlling relationship a bad relationship you know I've written about things like domestic violence mm-hmm. and termination of parental rights and lots of different junctures you know where people's where people meet the law and where the law needs to be cognizant of these very real limitations on. Um, on, on women's agency. Look, I want to ask you for your for your insight on this in a moment, but I'm curious about what you think of. There's an organization in Minnesota called 100 Rural Women, and and I'm familiar with the group. I think one of the most powerful things that they do is facilitate civil and leadership mentoring in pursuit of you know civil civic engagement, entrepreneurial. Mentoring. I mean, they are they are on the ground doing some of the. I, I guess it's the the hard and the enduring work of building civic and leadership mentoring from the ground up. Something I, I think this kind of goes back to. Well, if governmental policy isn't going to intervene and the pay gap, et cetera, et cetera, and some of the other things that Lisa was talking about. Maybe organizations like this have a really strong role in that. I think they're primarily supported by the private sector. So tell me what you see in, in regards to this and the communities that you're in. Oh, I'd, I'd love to learn more about this group. Uh, they sound fantastic. Um, you know, one of the, the the first things that I would think about in in terms of, of mentorship is is building relationships and tackling patriarchy and those sorts of unequal or hierarchical relationships often needs to start at the household. Mm-hmm. So I hear exactly what you're saying. If, if you don't affront or make opportunities or for, for women in their everyday lives and their households to take on these kinds of positions, um, policy is, is not going to touch it. So mm-hmm. if you have close mentors and other women that can help show a different path than what is seen or is is maybe traditionally expected, that can make a huge difference. And to be frank, uh, it can break down the good old boys network. And especially in agriculture for women, we're we're finally having the USDA catch up and and, uh, count multiple operators of farms. So women are getting counted more rather than just being titled the farm wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now they're getting classification, you know, as a farm operator. That matters. You know, the way we count matters for women to get recognition for their work. However, you know, they need to have relationships so they can access markets and know how to get into those relationships and have those points of access. And other women are going to be one of the best routes for them to get that. Lisa, it sounds like you wanted to add something to that. 
Oh no, that, that, that was, that was brilliant. Actually, what I was going to add, which may not be appropriate for your, for your purposes, but I, it just was reminding me of my mother-in-law who grew up in Cloquet, Minnesota, hmm. um, hmm. in a rural Northern Minnesota who, uh, recently, uh, died. But it, it, we, it, at her memorial service, we were all just remarking on what uh, how civically engaged she was. And I think a lot, you know, she was extremely active in the League of Women Voters her whole life and, you know, so forth. She was just a model of civic engagement. And I think that um, some of that can come out of rural communities, right, where people really are reliant on each other in the ways that, you know, are reflected in organizations like this 100 Rural Women um, they are making it happen in their communities, and the work that they are doing is so, so critically important. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Minnesota Now. We're talking about what is often misunderstood, misperceived about rural communities. It's something that the Westminster Town Hall Forum is taking on, the divisions. They've got a series called Healing Our House Divided This Fall. And one of our guests is is part of the uh, speaker's roster as she comes in to talk about rural and urban divisions. Lisa Pruitt is a professor of law at the University of California, Davis, and she appears at the Westminster Town Hall Forum on October 25th at noon. I'm also starting a series of town hall forums in rural Minnesota uh, tomorrow night. We're starting in St. Joseph. All are welcome. We're going to talk about different issues. More information at ruralvoice.org. Loka Ashwood is with us. She's a sociologist and assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, and she focuses on rural communities and their participation in democracy. Loka, I really want to ask you about what you... So you, you told us earlier that you will often hear in these rural communities, government doesn't care about us. But I also know that if you if you break down the kind of state or federal government help that flows to many rural communities, you will see a number of people who are receiving it. You'll see a high share of recipients, but people don't tend to I guess associate that with with whatever they feel like they're being denied when they're talking to you. I mean, you're going to see veterans, but you know, you'll see veterans benefits and um, food benefits for kids and, and those kinds of things. Why doesn't that translate into more of, I guess, a support for federal government policy and more of an acknowledgement that that some of that money is flowing into rural communities? Or do I have that wrong? I, I'd love your insight on that. Well, you know, with the, the distribution of SNAP benefits, um, you know, I'm not in a position to say precisely what percentage rural folks make it in comparison to urban and, and, and how that is intersectional with, with their poverty status or their income level. Um, but what I do know is that a lot of the subsidies, for example, um, during the coronavirus food assistance program that came out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and other pandemic-related spending, like the PPP program, a lot of those funds, these literally billions of dollars of funds, go to corporate actors, 
that mm-hmm. may not be locally situated in these communities, mm-hmm. but have, for example, we've seen this in an industrial animal production, have a limited liability company that attaches back to the local PO box at um, the post office. Oh. Uh, so we're we're seeing, at least in my line of work, that a lot of the beneficiaries of these massive amounts of government subsidies, particularly when it comes to businesses and agriculture, are going to, um, number one, companies or corporations, and number two, their absentee, if you, if you actually go up their corporate hierarchy, but they have a, a, a local P.O. box where they have the mail sent. So the reason why I bring this up is, yeah, number one, we need more government oversight. Number two, we need to take on corporate law mm-hmm. across the board to help everybody in the United States. But number three is that's not people, right? That is, that is corporate personhood not the people of rural America. And rural folks actually know this stuff. They're really smart. They're out on the ground. They they get a sense of the inequitable relationships or the absentee companies coming in, buying up land or buying up um, hospitals, for example, and this leading to closure, et cetera. But the funding still going to these entities with the face of serving agriculture or rural America. So that's what I know about and I study. Mm-hmm. And we've got to make sure that these funds are not going to companies that are extracting the profits from rural places to 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 line their pocketbooks elsewhere. So is that oversight or is that policy change? You know what? It's both. It's both. So, I mean, I, we need policy changes across the board in the United States. This is an urban rural issue that requires corporate disclosure of ultimate beneficiaries. That means who are the actual shareholders that are making the money off these companies, these these facious companies that are in, in a very thick corporate hierarchy. Let's, let's figure out who's actually getting the benefits of across the board of the subsidies that we're providing as, as a nation. Um, so I think that's an urban-rural issue that we can tackle through public disclosure and then if you're an owner that's not situated in these places that we're trying to bring economic development to, whether or not that's urban or rural, you don't get the cash. Hmm. So it is an oversight issue, but it's all also a fundamental change in how we have corporate disclosures about power in this country. Uh, Lisa, I was reading some of what you were saying about um, you think that more educators should be engaged in affirming the pursuit of professions in rural America. What do you think happens in in education when it comes to encouraging students to what go back to the small town they came from or think about you know settling into a rural community and pursuing a career? Well, again, I would just point to the contrast between South Dakota and California and there are lots of, you know, state it's a continuum in between perhaps, but you know, in a state like South Dakota, they've had the now past chief justice of the Supreme Court show up at the law school the first day of, you know, to greet the 1L starting law students every mm-hmm. year and really affirm that rural practice is a viable option. It's a noble option. There is a need. And I think that's a great model, right? To say this is a legitimate choice and we will support you and you can make it. I would wager that there's not a law school in California, including mine, right? That is really uh, sending a message like that to students. Really? Because 
Why? Oh, absolutely. Because it's not seen as prestigious. There is so much in legal education that looks to, obviously, big law, big money. And so the more students that, uh, there are just all sorts of incentives, right, to channel your students into elite careers. And being a small town lawyer is not seen as an elite career. And most law schools are no longer really well equipped to train students to go and, you know, be solo practitioners, at least, I mean, I'm really speaking more to California law schools. And I, but I think this would be true of in most prestigious mm-hmm. law schools, right? Again, it's just not seen as, you know, the best way I can express it, it's just not seen as, as prestigious. So institutions, the incentives are to chase are to chase prestige and to chase money. And so you have to swim against the tide, right? Right. Uh, To do what a school like South Dakota is doing. And North Dakota has just implemented a similar program where they're, you know, they're going to subsidize lawyers to go to rural communities. But a lot of states have become extremely aware that are, are now highly aware, right? There's been a big focus on this rural lawyer crisis, but very few of the regulatory bodies, the uh, the state houses, the people who could do something about this have been willing to put their money where their mouth is and say, yeah, here's what it's going to cost. This is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to retool, um, you know, p- aspects of legal education and so forth and so on. So, yeah, we're just not sending, by and large, the right messages to students that, you know, this is, this is a viable option and we will train you. We will help equip you to do this. We will connect you with a mentor. We will help connect you to someone who is wanting to retire, you know, right. Right. Cloquet, Minnesota, or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the the incentives just aren't there. I wanted to, if I could, just speak to the question that you put to Loka a moment ago. If sure. I think another aspect of, another really important aspect of examining how much money is flowing from the federal government to rural people and places is to, you know, to go back to what Loka said about the cost-benefit analysis that the government often does it's very, very difficult to achieve economies of scale when you are serving a rural population. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a big part of what gets in the way when you look at infrastructure spending. Roads are very important in rural areas. I know they're important in urban areas too, but sometimes we forget how important uh, roads are to rural people. So, you know, well, how many people are going to travel on this road? Or how many people are going to use this water system? How many students is this school going to educate? It's going to cost more to educate students in a rural school because you can't achieve economies of scale Mm -hmm. and, you know, apply that to whatever the service or bit of infrastructure is. And so we have to be willing to pay more to do that, which means that we have to decide that rural people in places are valuable enough to make that investment, that we are getting something uh, from them, whether it is about extractive industries, fishing, mining, agriculture. You know, you you would think that food would get people's attention, uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, we overlook that this is, uh, you know, these rural folks are the people who are feeding us. Uh, You know, something else that we get from rural places 
is uh, we get recreation. That's right. right. A, yeah. A, a lot of us increasingly look to consume the rural. And you know this in Minnesota because of the boundary waters and, you know, lots of other uh, wonderful natural amenities that draw people to, you know, to your beautiful state. So if we think about it in that way and we think about how rural and urban are interconnected in terms of what we get from each other, all these all these things that we get from from rural places, then that may help, you know, open the purse strings. Um, it may help, you know, convince policymakers and, and lawmakers to, uh, you know, be a little bit more generous with rural communities, because if we want those communities to survive, to provide the things that we value, then it's going to cost a little more. Loka, I'm a huge reader, and I feel like I turn to books to tell me about the world. I want to ask you about a book that a lot of Americans read about rural America. And I want to ask you if you thought it was enlightening or or deleterious to the perception of rural America, and that's Hillbilly Elegy. Do you, I'm, you probably read it. Mm, um, I did. So I did. what's your take? Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to answer that. But you have on the call the expert who is helped write a book on this book. So Lisa Pruitt is, <laughs> is she's, she's the best person to answer. But um, I, I can can say a, a little bit on it, which is that it's an interesting personal account, but it has been extrapolated in ways to Appalachian rural people that makes absolutely no sense. And it instead reifies stereotypes mm -hmm. about individual people at the expense of paying attention to the structure that got us in this place to this to this point in the first place and I'll leave it I'll leave it okay. there and let Lisa yeah answer that further Lisa did it enlighten in a valuable way was it more I guess damaging to really understanding the kinds of things we've been talking about this hour well, like Loka, I would want to acknowledge, you know, J.D. Vance's personal story, which he's certainly in, entitled to tell. But I think it has been very damaging, actually. And part of that is the, the spin that he put on, you know, his tale, um, which, as Loka suggests, um, overlooks structures um, and the structures that both benefited him, like the ability to go into the military and to get a good education at a good public uh, university at Ohio State University and so forth and so on. And, and really, you know, he leans very much into um, uh, agent, you know, his agency and the good decisions that he made versus the bad decisions that he saw people around him making. And I certainly don't want to diminish the significance of individual uh, agency, but it's it's really important, I think, to um, you know to think about his choices and the choices that other people are making in relation to what they have access to, you know, structurally and and so forth. And again, we can talk about schools, we can talk about healthcare, and so I think the book, because so many people sort of took his uh, took his story as some sort of gospel truth yes. and blamed, um, you know, blamed the people who weren't succeeding, uh, you know, uh, put all of that blame entirely on, uh, you know, uh, the, the failures. 
uh, the people who were, who were failing. Um, I think that's been, that's been very, very damaging. It's interesting because of then, of course, uh, he has taken that message and taken it out into a campaign for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. And I guess I wonder if some of, you know, if he hadn't turned to a political career, if you think what he wrote in his experience would have been less, how do I want to put this? You know, he's continued to talk about it in ways that are highly politicized because that's what a political campaign is. Do you think that has been part of the reason that that you feel this is so damaging, that the book itself is damaging? I th- I think the book was very damaging before he before he made the explicit move move to politics because it was so it was so widely read and lauded by both the left and the right initially, right. Right. Uh, which which was very surprising to some of us because you know if he had been saying about communities of color what he was saying about poor white people the left would not have embraced him as they right. did initially i think you know his recent turn in politics has actually been is is actually quite extreme is is actually quite a bit more extreme than than the book and mm-hmm. in some ways we can actually differentiate you know where he's going politically now um you know from from what he said in the book but um, certainly he became a celebrity, right? He became a celebrity because the book, uh, did so well and was, uh, was so widely read and generally well received. And in this era where being a celebrity seems to, uh, be a benefit when you go into politics, <laughs> you know, that has certain, that, that has apparently been a boost to his campaign, uh, which I find, uh, you know, personally, I, I'm, I'm puzzled by. But, um, it, it, you know, it appears that he's in a very tight race with, um, you know, with, with Tim Ryan and somebody else who has real credibility as a child of, you know, the white working class in Ohio. Um, so that's going to be a, a very, very interesting, uh, race. But I, I do think it's, it's significant that Vance has turned, has made a far, far sharper right turn in his, uh, political stances than he did in the book, even. Mm-hmm. I thank you both for the conversation. It was wide-ranging, and I feel like I learned a lot. Lisa, thank you. Thank you so much. It was a delight to be with you, and I'm very much looking forward to being in uh, the Twin Cities in October. Lisa Pruitt is a professor of law at the University of California, Davis. She specializes in rural issues, and she will appear at the Westminster Town Hall Forum on October 25th. Loka, thank you very much. So glad you could join, and I loved having your perspective. Thank you very much. It's been a treat. Loka Ashwood is a sociologist and assistant professor at the University of Kentucky. She focuses on rural communities and their participation in democracy. I'm Carrie Miller. If you want to find out more about the Rural Voice Town Halls, ruralvoice.org.